As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. What do we like? Football tactics. And when do we like it? Weekly for the Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell. I've got Mark Kerry and Michael Cox with me once more. Michael, hello. Hi, Ali. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Looking forward to today. Good weekend of Premier League action. A lot going on. Suddenly a title race out of nowhere. Yeah, are we? Something's changed in the air. Are we getting to the? Are we officially getting to what they call the business end of the season now? It sort of feels like you wade through the winter months somewhat, and then all of a sudden the clouds part. I mean, as you say, great weekend of Premier League action, which definitely helps. But we're into the final third of the league seasons. We're into the knockouts of the Champions League and other European competitions. Domestic cups are rattling along nicely. It's a great feeling. It is. I mean, the business end of the season almost at times has felt like a bit of an anachronism in the sense that. We don't get that many title races these days across the major European leagues. So the business end of the season was not that much business being done. Um, But yeah, suddenly out of the blue, it it feels like almost everyone has got something to play for. I reckon there's four teams in the Premier League who are not involved in relegation, uh, the title race or the battle for the top four. And those teams are? I'd say Brighton, Southampton, Leicester and Villa. I don't think are involved. I think you can maybe make a case for Chelsea not having that much to play for because I don't think they're in danger of falling out of the top four and I don't think they're involved in the title race. But it looks like it's going to be a fun fun few months. Good. Great energy. Hello, Mark Carey. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Ali. Yeah, the talk of this is is pleasing for me as well. As a, as a Liverpool fan, to be back in the title race is, is always good. So I'm happy to hear that. How is that Achilles injury? It is, it's going. It's just ticking along. Um, hopefully get surgery on it soon and then I'll be back playing. Still trying to fulfill that dream of being a professional one day. Um, yeah, it's all good. Thank you. You're almost there. I do feel very bad for you, not just because it's a bad injury, but also, you know, specifically with the Achilles, you know, you share the same physical vulnerability as Achilles, the greatest of all Greek warriors, <laughs> but you don't get the glory of slaying the Trojan prince Hector outside the gates of Troy. <laughs> Which I think it's not it's not really a fair trade, is it? Guys, it, it's been a while since you dusted off those notebooks. Um, by which I mean, it's been a while since we used the notebook 
podcast structure to cover many topics in one episode. Uh, and after such a good weekend in the Premier League, and with us now officially into the, the business end, Michael's cut the ribbon there uh, to unveil the business end of the season. Um, we're going to talk about a few of the teams and the managers in the Premier League. We're going to talk about the top of it, the bottom of it, relegation battle and those in between. I think we should start with probably the headline game from a billboard weekend in the Premier League, and that was uh, Manchester City 2, Tottenham Hotspur 3. Michael, you enjoyed this one. How did they do it? Yeah, it was a fantastic game. I think one of the best performances I've seen, one of the best team performances I've seen for a while. Um, How did they do it? Well, I suppose it was classic Antonio Conte, I think, in the way that they won the game. It was a very deep defensive shape. It started out as 5-4-1. I think at times it actually became 6-3-1 when Kulusevski played uh, almost a wing-back role with Emerson tucking inside. And then there were lightning quick transitions at times. Uh, I think Son was excellent in that respect. They played out from the back very well, worked the ball forward into midfield and just cut through the lines very quickly. And of course, Harry Kane up front, I think his best performance of the season by a long way, combined his two roles, if you like, as a bit of a false nine playing balls through the defence and also a decisive contribution for two goals in the penalty box. So it Mm. was... Like I say, a classic Conte victory. I think when when his sides win in big games, of all the managers around, there's just such a, a typical way that they do it. And when, when players carry out his instructions as efficiently as, as Tottenham did at the weekend, I think his sides are amongst the best to watch. When you say this was classic Conte, have you got a particular fixture between Chelsea and Manchester City from Conte's reign at Chelsea in mind? Yeah, I think that's a really good shout. Um, Obviously, the same opposition and they went about it in a similar way. Um, But there's been, I mean, various games. I think back to when Italy beat Spain in Euro 2016. I think that was the best team performance of that tournament. Came in the second round, so maybe slightly too early for it to be remembered as a real classic. But I thought that was a similar display in terms of the, the level of control and, you know, the intricacy of the passing and how coordinated the side was in possession. Um, and it's games like this. I mean, when he was appointed, there was a bit of chat about, oh, he plays defensive football and that kind of thing. And I suppose if you look at the possession statistics, for example, this, this was quite a defensive display. But if you do get four, five, six moments of just brilliant uh, flowing passing football, counter-attacking football, depending on what you want to classify it as, I don't think you can say it's an entirely boring performance. You don't have to play brilliantly for 90 minutes to uh, to be entertained. To kind of weigh in from a statistical perspective, I don't know whether you guys have seen the the XG timeline from that game as well, where you can look at it kind of visually to see, you know, going across the the number of minutes um, and the the quality of the chances that created that it was just a really good kind of advert for a high volume of shots from Manchester City, but of low value versus mm-hmm. you know low number of, of shots from Spurs but they were of, of high value as you say Michael only a, only a low number but actually the the expected goals across the game actually wasn't too dissimilar so it just shows that mm. you know you've got to make sure that the, the shots that you do choose are of, of high value and they certainly were for Spurs. 1.62 xg generated from just six shots um, involved in, in Michael's article about this game I think I'm right in saying Michael that the highest xg per shot of the season, which I guess is a reflection of the sorts of chances you can create in transition or on the counter-attack against teams with a high line, if you get it right. Yeah, I had fun working out that one myself, actually. Yeah, just about second in terms of the highest XG per shot. The interesting thing is also in in the top five was uh, Tottenham's only other performance under Conte against a a title contender in the, uh, the game at home to Liverpool. 
they had 10 shots for an XG of 2.56. So, yeah, pretty much the same the same kind of performance. Not not creating many shooting opportunities, but when they did, they were obviously a, a very clear sight of goal. And I specifically hesitated when I, I used the word counter-attack there, Michael, because there was an interesting discussion in the comments on your piece. It was, it was something raised by Alex S, who said, great analysis, always a nice boost for your confidence, uh, but all three goals were the result of playing the ball out from the back. They didn't feel like counter-attacking goals. Uh, this is quite an interesting discussion, isn't it? If a goal comes from playing it short at the back to suck the opposition onto them, but ultimately hitting them seemingly on the break or into space, is it considered a counter-attack or not? What, have you seen Antonio Conte's Instagram account? <laughs> I think you're answering a question that I haven't asked here. Surely this couldn't be the start of your answer. <laughs> well, he's, he's uh, yesterday he posted a two-minute video with the caption, counter-attacks, question mark, exclamation mark, maybe not, dot, 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 and then three <laughs> crying emojis and then has posted a, yeah a two minute vo- uh, video of uh, Tottenham's goals from that game where he shows them stemming from goal kicks now I hope he got the I hope he's got the rights for that he that can- was my first thought <laughs> yeah I think if, if we did that I think we'd we'd be uh, liable to having our account suspended <laughs> but no I mean it's a good point it's it's a it's a very good point I mean I remember Chelsea under Sarri scoring a, a goal against Manchester City in a 1-0 win, where it was a classic one of these, where they continually played the ball around their defence, waited for City to press, then suddenly cut through the lines and played a long ball, and they kind of had a three-on-three or something. And I remember writing a big article about that and saying, we don't really have a word for what this is. Um, Sarri ball. Um, yeah, I mean, it does feel like a counter-attack, doesn't it, when you see like a, a two-on-two or a three-on-three. But yeah, if it stems from a goal kick... You can't really call it that. I don't, don't. I don't think it is. I don't think it can be called that. I mean, Mark. In not that we ask data to ask to answer every question that we have, but in in terms of data collection, if there is a period of of build up at the back, then surely this is a, a build up attack rather than a, a direct attack or a counter attack. Yeah, it, it's all the different terms, isn't it? Because obviously we spoke about direct attacks last week, which had its yeah. own definition as well of obviously winning the ball back and reaching the the penalty area or having a shot within fifteen seconds. So under this data term it's not a direct attack neither is it a counter-attack but as you say it's 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 a build-up attack which then suddenly becomes fairly direct i suppose which <laughs> i don't think there is a metric for but um but some great play nevertheless of, of obviously spurs to to be able to cut them open and i think arsenal did it really well earlier in the season as well i think it was at home to manchester city so it shows that you can if you get it right you can get in behind manchester city now, Michael, the, the follow-up question for me after this Spurs performance, uh, acknowledging its brilliance, was how can Tottenham improve their performances in other fixtures, such as Southampton at home or Wolves at home, fixtures that they lost in the last few weeks? You know, games where they're going to find it harder to, to manufacture these counter-attacks and, uh, and play to the strengths of, of Kane and Son quite so easily. Yeah, I mean, in theory, they should have been able to do it against Southampton because they press very high. And I think to a certain extent, Wolves press high as well, certainly more so than they did last season. Um, I mean, in general, I think they need to progress the ball a little bit better through midfield. I think Bentancur should give them something in that regard. They were lacking a player like him, or at least a player like him that the manager trusted, because obviously they got Lo Celso and, uh, and Dombele out of the club. Um, I mean, I think that their main method of attacking is Kane coming short and, and Song going deep, which... There's no reason that can't work against deeper sides, but it tends to work better against sides playing a high defensive line. 
Uh, and I just think they need more from the fullbacks as well. I mean, Regulon, I think at times is good going forward, but on the right, I think they've got a real problem. I mean, Emerson, I thought his performance in this game, you know, like most fullbacks are either defensively solid, but a little bit pedestrian on the ball, or they're very good going forward, but shaky defensively. I can't really work out which one Emerson is because in this game, he looked vulnerable. Well, he didn't really contribute anything defensively, which is why Kulisevsky was dropping in. But then when Tottenham had the ball, it was, like, it was like City would just... It's like Guardiola said, yeah, it's fine. You can let him have the ball. He had so much time and really produced nothing with his his end product. So I'm not quite sure what Conte can do in that situation. He clearly doesn't fancy Doherty much either. Um, but certainly more from the wing-backs. I mean, yeah, attacking with the front five is basically what all this system is... It, it, what the system is all about. And, and Conte sides are generally very good at switching the play from one wing-back to the other. But if one of them isn't that useful going forward, that's obviously not going to be a big threat. Question on Harry Kane, and particularly when it comes to the England national team. We've got a an international break coming up in, in a month or so, a couple of friendlies, and of course the World Cup later this year. Michael, with Kane performing like this in this nine-and-a-half role, I was wondering, do you think it makes Southgate's selection decisions a little easier? By which I mean, when Kane's playing like this, you look at someone like Son benefiting with the in- intelligence and the speed to run in behind. If Kane is England's captain, clearly the starting number nine, should the wide forwards be types that are more willing to run in behind than those who want the ball to feet and to dribble inside from those wide positions? England have both types of player and it feels like that that's a big decision for Southgate to make. Yeah, I think you're right. But I think it's probably the same going into uh, the Euros last time out. I mean, I actually think Kane was doing this role for England a little bit before he was for Tottenham. In a way, I mean, if you look back to 2018, uh, World Cup, obviously Kane finished top goal scorer, penalties and headers at set pieces. But really his game was all about coming short and playing it in behind to Sterling. So, yeah, you're right. He, he does depend on that kind of movement. I mean, a related question, I think, is who would play if England are going to be built to play around him in that role? If Kane was to go down injured midway through the tournament, who would be the best replacement? Mm. And I think it's probably Foden, which feels weird considering in terms of stature, they're so different. False nine, but, Phil. Yeah, I mean, at times he played that role really well for, for City. Obviously, a different type of player. You would consider him a playmaker rather than a, a striker. But I think he's very, very good in that role. He's mm. very good positionally, intelligent with his distribution. I don't really see Rashford or Calvert-Lewin um, fulfilling that kind of role. Maybe Southgate would want to play different with more of a direct number nine. But um, yeah, I would, I would fancy Foden to, to come in and do something similar. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, you you mentioned 2018, the Euro 2020 qualifying, which started in late 2018, where England just absolutely blitzed all comers and and were playing in in the sort of manner that I'm talking about. Kane scored 12 goals, got five assists, and Raheem Sterling got eight goals and nine assists, very much in that that wide forward role, adding depth to the attack and and kind of benefiting from Kane's quality. So something to look out for uh, next month in the friendlies that England will play. Mark, what did... The Manchester City Spurs result mean for the title race that we're all so thirsty for. I feel like uh, on this exact topic, you can kind of give us the the insight from the heart and from the head, which is quite helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's it certainly opened it up, hasn't it? I think it's it's exciting for the kind of the the narrative because that didn't seem like it was the case in recent weeks. I think what's interesting is that it is in either team's hands in terms of Liverpool and Manchester City now for the first time in a long time. Of course, we'll have to see how the results go between now and when they play each other at Manchester City. But I think if if both teams kind of win their, their next few games, then I think that 
a, a draw could still be okay for, for Manchester City when, when Liverpool play Manchester City. So it's in Liverpool's hands, but they would actually obviously need to to win um, the, the game that they play against Manchester City. And statistically speaking, I looked into it a little bit more uh, in more depth and Manchester City actually have the easier remaining fixtures um, if you look at it using a, a model from a website called 538. So what this, this model does is look at a team rating for, for everyone in the league between zero and 100. So looking at it as a proxy of team strength. And what I did was average the, the remaining uh, the ratings of the remaining opponents for, for both Liverpool and Manchester City and City do just edge it as having the easier fixtures. So that's my head speaking that Manchester City have the easier run in. <laughs> Obviously my heart would be that Liverpool somehow managed to to defy the odds I suppose. I love it when you get into the this part of the season and you start talking about which clubs have what in their hands. Uh, and sometimes, <laughs> you know, it, it almost makes, not to take the mic, but it does make a bit of a mockery of the situation where two teams can have the title in yeah. their own hands yeah. because of the fixture that they play against each other. Michael, I, I know that you were very impressed with Liverpool last week in their Champions League win at the San Siro against Inter Milan. Uh, are you sensing a strong end to the season from the Reds? Yeah, I mean, at the San Siro, they, they defended very well in terms of the, you know, slightly old school uh, way we talk about defending in terms of the centre-backs played well. I think usually they defend well in terms of higher up the pitch, in terms of pressing, in terms of the midfield. But I thought for once their centre-backs actually really had to uh, had to do some of the dirty work. And I think they did that very well. Obviously won the game with a, a late flurry, but I actually thought, I thought Inter were quite unlucky to lose that game 2-0. Um, but yeah, I mean, Liverpool are a really good side. They've been... I've been really impressed how they've returned basically to their previous level after, you know, what happened last season. I think there were more doubts um, at the start of the season than we maybe consider now. I mean, we didn't know that Van Dijk really was going to return to his best. And I think, you know, he was maybe one of the best performers in the San Siro. Um, Jota's form has been absolutely fantastic as well. Um, so, yeah, they've. I mean, they've... Over the last five years now, with the exception of that uh, that that season last season where their injury problems were just unprecedented, they've just been so consistent. And I think in another era, we'll probably have three or four Premier League titles rather than one so far. And I think they're they're still outsiders um, because of the fixtures and because of the point situation. But they are going to make a go of it, and uh, I didn't expect that two weeks ago. It, it does sort of show itself to, to be quite clear in terms of just how strong Liverpool's uh, attack is. So they have the highest non-penalty expected goals per 90 in the league. So higher than Manchester City's. They're creating chances worthy of 2.3 goals per 90, which is, which is quite unbelievable. The only side to create more chances worthy of more than two goals in the league. And it's currently their, their highest or higher than any of their previous five seasons in terms of the, the average per 90. So it shows just how much strength they've obviously got in attack. They've obviously got now a, a front five to choose from rather than a front three with the addition of Luis Diaz as well as obviously Jota the past uh, 18 months or so. Of course, City do have the stronger defence. We've spoken about it a lot, haven't we, on this on this podcast of how City's strength is obviously their dominance across all areas of the pitch, but they just the opposition just never really get a sniff in terms of a shot. So City obviously stronger defensively. Liverpool's high line sometimes can get, um, you know, does have its little weaknesses here and there, but it's it's so hard to to call. But I think that City have the stronger defence, but looking at the numbers, Liverpool have the stronger attack. 
This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. We're talking Premier League notables this week and in the next part we'll discuss Leeds United against Manchester United plus West Ham and Wolves, big six disruptors. That's up next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. So, Michael, Leeds against Manchester United was another entertaining fixture over the weekend. Four-two to Manchester United. Was this any different to the other Manchester United versus Leeds United? basketball matches that we've seen in the last two seasons I mean we've had a 6-2 a 5-1 a 4-2 and then annoyingly a (laughs) 0-0 but quite an entertaining 0-0 at that I mean it was a couple of weird things about this one one the pitch was just I mean the ball was not running properly at times which just contributed to how scrappy everything was and there were nine bookings and all nine came in the last 40 minutes which is quite weird. We had 54 minutes without a yellow card and then nine after that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there is a there is a pattern to games involving Leeds. I think in general, Solskjaer's tactics against Leeds were, were pretty good. He understood what Manchester United had to do. I think one of the things that is always beneficial when you're playing Leeds is one of your, well, at least one of your centre-backs has got to be good at carrying the ball because the way Leeds man mark, they essentially mark everyone but leave one of the opposition centre-backs free so they have freedom to bring the ball forward and we saw that with one of the goals I think it was the Fernandes goal where Victor Lidloff just suddenly burst forward and that was really what created the attack so I, I think uh, I think Manchester United are generally quite suited to playing against Leeds they've got players who are good at running into space I mean it was a very strange game for a number of reasons Leeds two goals came in the space of 90 seconds take away those 90 seconds and I think Manchester United look pretty dominant here yeah, I'd agree that they did certainly look dominant. It was just, I just loved it. it looked like a proper Sunday league game at, at times because of the sort of the poor conditions. But, you know, you mentioned about it being a bit like a basketball game, Ali, that I looked into the, the possessions within the, the game, which I think, we again, we've spoken about before in this podcast of how many times the ball exchanged sort of hands between the two teams. So a higher number of possessions is indicative of more of a frantic, chaotic game. And there was 116 possessions in the game, which was the the highest for, for Manchester United this season. Um, interestingly, not the highest for, for Leeds, which is probably, again, a representation of just how chaotic every game is for, for Leeds. But yeah, I, I do think ultimately when, you know, when things sort of calm down a little bit, United, Manchester United, I should say, had uh, just had the dominance in, in the end. And yeah, when things calm down, Managed to obviously get the win. Wolverhampton Wanderers beat Leicester City this weekend as well. No one's picked up more points than Wolves in the last eight games in the Premier League. Joint with Arsenal and Manchester City. 19 points in that time. Some haul. Uh, Mark, six wins in eight. What's making Wolves so good at the moment? I feel like a couple of months ago we noted that they were almost there, but they they weren't doing enough to, to put teams away and win games. Now they absolutely are. 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I, I did a piece recently with with Tim Spears, our our Wolves writer, and he certainly picked out a few key players who were having great seasons. Um, Max Kilman being one, um, Ruben Neves being another, Jose Sarr being another. So there's certainly some players who are having really good seasons, but ultimately there hasn't been a, a drastic change in the way that Wolves have maybe set up, shall we say. So they're still playing with, with three at the back, whether that's a 3-4-3 or a, a 3-5-2 at times, they're still playing with with a back three. There's not been a massive overhaul in terms of the personnel in the squad. So I think that's interesting as well. But they've actually got the third best defensive record in the top five European leagues, which is a stat which I really enjoy. Um, so yeah, it's it's tricky because they are overperforming a little bit defensively. It has to be said that they're conceding fewer goals than the chances they actually are giving up. And I think that is thanks to Jose Sarr. Again, someone we've spoken about previously on this this podcast. He's, well, depending on what data providers you look at, but looking at FB Ref, he's, he's prevented 8.1 goals more than he should have based on the quality of shots that he's faced, which is the third... Wow highest in the top five European leagues as well. So from a shot-stopping perspective, Saar is having a, a fantastic season. Um, and Michael mentioned it before, Wolves are winning the ball back a lot higher up. So they're being far more aggressive um, in their sort of work off the ball there. They're winning the ball back in the attacking third 4.3 times per 90, which is uh, actually a really noticeable increase on previous seasons. So there's sort of subtleties, there's some individual performances that are going down well this season, but there's not kind of a massive noticeable change, which is why it's so interesting as a sort of a case study of why they're doing so well, but long may it continue. Michael, they've scored less than a goal a game and they've conceded even fewer than that. It is an interesting case study, isn't it? What what do we think about Bruno Large? Presumably he should be getting quite a lot of credit for an impressive first campaign in English football. Yeah, I think he should for the for the reasons mentioned. There has been a little bit of a stylistic change without him doing too much different in terms of the formation. I mean, it's still three at the back, usually three four three, sometimes three five two. I, I think it's worth saying, and I, I don't want to be t- uh, too mean with my praise for him, but Wolves were pretty much on this level until last season when Jimenez was was out for almost the entire campaign with, you know, obviously a really serious injury. And and that's a pretty big reason why I think they slipped down the league. Now, I think it probably was time for change and, and Nuno probably comes to the end of his time, but they've kind of gone back to maintaining their form before. I mean, it wouldn't have been a surprise to see Wolves in seventh two seasons ago. Uh, you know, that's where they were finishing. So they've kind of returned to where they were before, I would say. I need to apologise to Bruno Large, not his first season in English football. Of course, he was the Sheffield Wednesday assistant manager to Carlos Carvajal in 2015 to 2017. And then at Swansea City as well, his first season as a manager doing very, very well. I mean, West Ham and Wolves are currently the, the, the best teams outside of the big six, looking at the league table. Wolves below West Ham, but actually have a slightly better points per game tally. It, it's neck and neck between the two of them. And I couldn't help but remember, Michael, on the 24th of February last year, almost exactly one year to the date, we did a podcast focused on West Ham United and Leicester City, and it was called Top Four Gate Crashes. And they were fourth after 25 games with 45 points. In the end, Liverpool and Chelsea got above them. Uh, one year later, they're fifth after 26 games with 42 points. So slightly fewer points, but absolutely up there again. Is this the same excellent season playing out again, or, or are there key differences between West Ham of this season and last? Does feel quite familiar to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean they're still they're still up there hanging on a little bit. 
I mean, they're a funny one, West Ham, because I thought they would drop down the table this season because of the, the stresses of European football. But actually, during that period where they're playing in the Europa League group stage, they didn't really suffer in the Premier League at all. It's been the period where they've, they've had it off from European football, where they suddenly have gone backwards. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what Mark thinks in, in terms of the statistics, but I felt like West Ham have just slightly been punching above their weight. Yeah, no, I do think you're right. And it, it does seem to be playing out similarly to, to last season in that I basically looked at their their rolling average, their 10-game rolling average um, across the past few seasons, which people will be familiar with. We use it a lot on site. And uh, it, it does seem to be playing out very similarly. They have a strong start to the season. They're creating chances of, of higher quality than they're conceding for quite consistently for, for the first kind of 10 to 15 games. And then that sort of slides and the the two are kind of coming closer together and ultimately they are giving up as many chances as they are creating, which is why they're sort of collecting some draws. The games are a lot tighter. It's sort of running by what the, the statistics are sort of saying. So whether or not they, basically, I think they will kind of drop away a bit ultimately. I think in the last, you know, the final couple of games of the season, I don't think they'll really be in with a genuine shout for top four, but unless things change, basically. At the moment, the underlying numbers suggest that they actually... Um, won't have that push there their expected goal difference so taking into account the quality of chances that they create and concede sort of added together is the seventh highest in the league at the moment so in terms of a top four push I think it's probably just a bit beyond them mm. it is interesting Michael that the way that they're doing it uh, is not necessarily what the stereotype might be for a David Moyes side you know we just talked about Wolves West Ham have scored almost twice the amount of goals that Wolves have scored, 45 to 23. They've also conceded almost twice the amount of goals that Wolves have scored. You know, the reason they are up there, so to speak, is because only three teams have scored more goals than them, which might be somewhat of a surprise to those who might have expected the blueprint would be, you know, sit in, keep it low margin, hit teams on the counter-attack, exploit things that way. It's, it's not really how it looks based on the, the amount of goals being scored and conceded. That is true. And I think the interesting thing is that they've got goals from a lot of different sources. Uh, 15 players have scored from in the Premier League. I haven't checked the stats, but I'd be surprised if that could be beaten mm. from any Premier League side. I mean, they've scored a lot from set pieces. Craig Dawson nodded one in the weekend. I remember goals from Bonner and Cresswell and slightly fluky one from Matsuaku and Ben Johnson. I mean, even the central midfield pairing of, of Declan Rice and uh, Thomas Suchek. They've got a lot of players who are quite quite unusual for their roles, I think. That's the fun thing about the central midfield. Rice is so good at carrying the ball. Suchek is so good in the air. So yeah, they are a little bit different to what we expect from, uh, from David Moyes' teams. Um, and they're doing well to score so many goals despite the fact that you know Antonio started the season really well but the goals have pretty much dried up since then um, and like you say they're, they're still scoring You mentioned at the top that you think Chelsea are not going to challenge the top two and almost certainly not going to drop out of the top four with City and Liverpool gunning for the title I make that one Champions League spot up for grabs and I make it let's say five teams gunning for it. Manchester United in fourth at the moment on 46. West Ham and Arsenal four points back on 42, albeit Arsenal have three games in hand. Wolves on 40, having played 24 and Spurs on 39, having played 23. So it's finally poised, isn't it? I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, Michael, who's most likely to make the top four out of that group of five teams? I think Arsenal are now in pole position. Um, I think they've been much improved in recent weeks, looking pretty solid. Good win at the weekend. I thought until recently it was Manchester United um, and they run actually a decent run of form in terms of results. But the funny thing with United is their fixtures, are, it's just so imbalanced in terms of the fixtures they've played under 
well, since Rangnick took over. I think he's been there 10, 11 games and haven't played any of the, the big six. Um, so they have been picking up wins and draws, but probably not enough really to challenge for the top four. And if you look at the kind of models and the betting odds or, or whatever, when he took over, they were people were relatively confident they'd finish in fourth place. And now that's looking less likely with um, with Arsenal, I think, now the favourites. Well, I, I wouldn't dare have an opinion myself. I'm going to always hide behind <laughs> the evidence and the data. Um, and it backs up exactly what you're saying, Michael. Um, I looked at 538's uh, predictions, so the website I mentioned before, and, and they simulate the, the remaining fixtures on a, on a wide a wide scale and, and see how they sort of play out and then provide probabilities of, of each team finishing in in whatever position come the end of the season. And Arsenal are actually the ones who are currently tipped to finish fourth. So they have a 48% chance of doing so. Um, with, uh, yes, yeah, so they're tipped to, to finish with 67 points ahead of United uh, in fifth with 64 points. So Manchester United have a 23% chance of finishing in the top four. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast in our final part with Michael Cox and Mark Carey. The Premier League relegation battle, the runners and riders. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Yeah, a few weeks ago, it felt obvious that it was three from four in the relegation battle, but... I think probably for the first time since we've been doing this podcast, and it's been over two years, Newcastle United are in excellent form. Uh, and I want to find out how and why. They, they got a good point at West Ham on Saturday. Three wins and three draws in their last six games. The first time since 2015 they've been unbeaten in six Premier League games. In fact, they're the only side in the league unbeaten since Christmas. Although, of course, they did lose to Cambridge United at home in the FA Cup. Michael, how are they playing and how well are they playing? I think they are playing well. I think the fact that they are unbeaten is is quite a big thing. I mean, you could argue that one of those draws uh, against Watford uh, was a little bit of a disappointment at home to Watford. You would you would think a side like Newcastle should be trying to win it, but just the there's been a change of mood. I think around Newcastle um, through not losing, through bringing in a couple of very good players in the January window. I mean, they're obviously more positive than they were. Uh, under Steve Bruce, they hold possession for longer. Um, there's been a couple of very obvious changes in positional terms. I think Joe Ellington being reinvented as a central midfielder, we've spoken about before in the pod. Um, they just seem a little bit more well-equipped for, for Premier League football, which I know is a very general thing to say. But under Bruce, they they to me, it almost felt like they were a championship side playing like an FA Cup game every week, like trying to keep it tight, counter-attacks set pieces whereas now they've got a little bit more about them in in possession using the ball well 
John Joe Shelby's been, I think, a big winner since Hal came in. I've been impressed by him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Willock's first goal at the weekend as well. That was a big issue because, with respect, if he's not scoring goals, I'm not quite sure what he's contributing to the side. So, yeah, there's been a few positives. I did a piece recently with uh, with Chris Woff, our, our Newcastle uh, writer, and it we tried to find some things to kind of quantify exactly, yeah, maybe where the improvements were. Because as you say, Michael, I think some of it is quite unquantifiable in terms of Newcastle have just got a good bit of momentum, I think, at the moment. But we looked at their defensive intensity as a start and their PPDA, and it was actually it showed an uptick in that regard. So they are actually pressing a little bit higher and with a bit more intensity so that they're able to, to, I guess, win the ball at least in the middle third or hopefully in the attacking third as well, rather than them being that kind of counter-attacking team, winning it in the penalty area and having so far to to go to actually mount a, a credible chance created. So they're, they're a little bit more intense in, in their pressing intensity, which is good. And again, I looked at their rolling expected goals for and against, and that's also showing an uptick in their, their chances created and the quality of chances created. And obviously a downward trend in terms of their the chances conceded. And I suppose they've got essentially a, a new backline haven't they in terms of mm. Matt Target coming in Dan Byrne and Kieran Trippier albeit he's now now injured but there's there's been some overhaul in, in defensive areas and as I say they do seem to have quite a bit of momentum now it's interesting isn't it that Newcastle United's takeover generated so many clicks in terms specifically of the January transfer window and, and all the players they they might look to buy with all this cash uh, and in the end Mark Matty Target Dan Byrne Trippier probably comes from a, a different bracket. You know, these were not the sorts of signings that were generating the clicks, but they have been the sorts of signings that have been able to slot straight in and be part of a uh, a better functioning football team. Yeah, not the most glamorous names, as you say, but I think Kieran Trippier himself, again, the unquantifiable side of things with, with his leadership and his sort of captaincy role in terms of, you know, he's got that experience, hasn't he, right at the, the highest level. I mean, I, I remember doing, I think it was on the, the David Ornstein show, just when Newcastle got taken over and some of the names that we banded about of you know the sort of jokey ones like Mbappe and and players like that Benzema and and all that that was never going to be realistic especially in the short term but what they needed to do was stay in the league and players like this are hopefully able to to help them do that. I remember when um, when the takeover happened there was a lot of chat about who the next manager might be and some people were throwing around the name of Rafa Benitez obviously who had been quite popular having worked there before um, and fun enough I think he's done quite a good job for them this season because he fell out with Luke hmm. Dean at Everton, which suddenly meant that Aston Villa signed him a little bit out of the blue. And that meant that Matt Target, who I think I'm right in saying had started every game for Villa or close to it, uh, suddenly ended up at Newcastle. And that was an area where I don't know whether they were going to get a player in. It had, had one not magically became available. So, I mean, they've been much improved. And I'm, uh, I'm actually going to see them this weekend. I'm at their game away at Brentford, which suddenly looks... Absolutely massive yeah. because Newcastle can go above Brentford if they win this game. And I, I look back to what the table was at the turn of the year, or actually the fifth uh, of January. I've got it. At that point, Brentford had twenty-three points, and Newcastle had eleven, so less than half as much, uh, having played the same games as well, which isn't always the case this season. And, and suddenly, what less than two months later, Newcastle can go above them in the table. And now you have to say I'd be fairly confident they would. Uh, escape relegation maybe mm. even look to finish 13th 14th something like that played two games fewer than Brentford as well I mean the bottom three Norwich Burnley Watford they'll be dismayed of course by 
Newcastle United's improved form and their improved points return over the last few weeks. And yet Watford and Burnley picked up very impressive away wins uh, last weekend as well, Michael. What what does that mean for when we're discussing the relegation battle? You know, I'm half tempted to, to ask, is the bottom three all set now? But as I say, it, it seems ridiculous because there's a lot happening down there. Yeah, there's a lot of teams in poor form. I mean, in the last six games, Palace haven't won, Brentford haven't won, Everton have only won one. And we've got five defeats in that time. So there's there's a lot going on. Um, and there are a couple of signs that the bottom three are picking up. I mean, maybe Norwich have already had their bounce, if you like. But Burnley, unexpected win at the weekend. Probably a little bit flattered by 3-0 away at Brighton. Um, but that, that could inspire some confidence. And, you know, positive signs from Watford. I thought they were excellent away at uh, Aston Villa. Thoroughly deserved that victory. Um, I know they haven't scored much since Hoisin took over, but defensively they've been so much better. And I do think they have the players on the break uh, where if teams give them opportunities, and I think Villa are quite vulnerable at defensive transitions, um, then they can pounce. So yeah, at both ends of the table, suddenly there's a lot to play for. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that because the different different number of teams have played such a different, a vast different number of games, it's so hard to tell as well. So Burnley have played 22 games and Norwich have played 25 games. So there could be a potential swing of, of nine points there if Burnley win their games in hand, which you wouldn't expect to, to happen because they've, they've not proved that they can do that thus far. But it's, it's so hard to tell exactly until they're kind of on a level playing field and they've all played the same number of games, which I suspect won't happen until there's probably a couple of games left of the season to play. So it's, it's really hard to predict. Michael, long streaks without a win only serve to increase discomfort. Brentford and Palace, they do have a six and eight point gap above the relegation zone, but they're winless in seven and six respectively. How concerned should those two teams be? Yeah, definitely not out of danger. I mean, both started very well. Brentford in terms of results and Palace in terms of performances. I think Palace probably do have enough to get themselves out of of trouble. I worry about Brentford. I mean... It doesn't seem particularly unusual that sides come up and do really well for the first month or two of the campaign and then fade massively. I remember Blackpool must be, what, 11 years ago now, being a similar situation. Um, 12 years ago now, in fact, Blackpool. Um, But, uh, I mean, the performance against Arsenal at the weekend, I just thought Brentford really lacked anything going forward. They're very good in certain situations in terms of set pieces, in terms of getting the, um, the strikers in behind the opposition, but if they can't do that, I don't think they have much on the ball. I mean, Christian Eriksen obviously is a very exciting signing if we see the best of him, but I do think they'll need more creativity and more ball progression through midfield, in particular, if they're to get out of trouble. I always like looking at the the remaining fixtures as well because it just does add that extra bit of context. Because looking at Brentford, they they do have the the second easiest average fixture difficulty. So again, using those ratings that I spoke about before. The second easiest average fixture difficulty of all teams in the the Premier League. So they've got Burnley, they've got Watford, Norwich, Everton and Leeds amongst their remaining fixtures. So some some winnable games there. So it maybe indicates that some of their recent performances or recent results um, have been a consequence of some some tough fixtures and they've got some very winnable games coming up. Palace have the fourth easiest average fixture difficulty, so you could see them maybe picking up some points along the way. But they do in their next few fixtures, they do have Wolves, Manchester City, Arsenal, and Leicester City. So they need to be careful that they don't actually get kind of desperate in the the very few fixtures that they do have, which could be winnable, and put too much pressure on themselves. 
Do you think there's a difference, Mark? And this is a very open question. I don't know whether it makes any sense. But obviously, if we're talking about Manchester United or Arsenal or Tottenham going for the top four, we obviously say they want easier fixtures. They want to be playing the size of the bottom of the league. But for Brentford at the moment, with their poor form, if they've got fixtures against Leeds and Newcastle and Watford, mm. I almost think that's that almost feels more dangerous because there becomes so much pressure not to lose those games. You know what I mean? Yeah, I remember having this conversation with with Tom Warville, who was obviously a mainstay on this podcast. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, um, the, we spoke about, you know, you speak a lot about game state of how certain kind of metrics are influenced by whether a team is, is losing, drawing or winning. And I do think there's something in kind of season state as well, where it depends on where the other teams are in the league at the time that you play them and obviously having a difficult run of fixtures at at certain points in the season can maybe uncover or or hide actually where where a team actually is in the league so yeah going into the final as you say final third of of the season on paper these these teams are maybe a little bit easier to play but then the context of the state of the season and where a team is in the league can actually then influence and disrupt that so it's yeah you can't just kind of go just on the the facts there, the context around it is that there's a lot of pressure to then go and win those games. I'd like to retract my pantomime booing of uh, of uh, former Podder Tom Warville, who uh, I gather is having an excellent time in Leipzig and uh, probably going for a pint with Dominic Sobersly later or something like that. <laughs> so fair play to him. Hope he's doing well. I uh, know he's still listening to the pod. What about Everton and Leeds? Because they're actually in between Crystal Palace and Brentford and the relegation zone. And I dare say feeling a little bit squeaky in the backside, Michael. Um, these two sides, I mean, different situations. Leeds living by Bielsa, dying by Bielsa. As far as I can tell, no sign of, of panicking and changing the manager. Everton absolutely did do that and now have Frank Lampard in charge. Talk me through the situation at these two clubs. Well, obviously, they played each other the weekend before last and, and Everton were very convincing winners, um, albeit in slightly odd circumstances with Coleman and Keane popping up with the first two goals, which you wouldn't have expected. Um, I don't think either of them are out of trouble. I, I do worry slightly about Everton just in the sense that when you look at what Frank Lampard did at Derby and Chelsea, I think he basically maintained the previous level of the sides. I don't think they massively improved. Um, I mean, if he maintains the level that Everton have been at this season... Um, then they're going to be in trouble because they started very well and have fallen away badly. I think it's a slightly difficult squad, Everton, in terms of what the optimum formation is. He's currently playing a 4-4-2 system, which uh, worked okay against Leeds. I think against Southampton, who are also playing a 4-4-2, Everton looked quite static and the movement just wasn't as fluid and as cohesive as Southampton. So, yeah, I, I do still think they're in trouble. I think they've probably got good enough star attackers to get out of it. But I must say, tactically at the moment, I'm looking at them and I'm thinking there's a few weaknesses there. I think Alan in front... I mean, I really liked Alan at Napoli, but he always looks so exposed in this system. And playing alongside Van der Beek, who's obviously a bit more of an attacking player, I think he's leaving him, yeah, just just so much space to cover. And he was, I think he was sacrificed at half-time at the weekend because he was on a yellow and a little bit in danger of getting another one. So, yeah, I've got a few concerns about Everton, I must say. Leeds, are, they're probably coming to the end under... Bielsa, Phil has written about this and it does feel like the time is nearly up there. I think if you get four years out of Bielsa, you've done very well. Um, I think they'll stay up, but probably time for a reboot in the summer, sadly. Yeah, I'd agree with both of those things. I I do think ultimately they both Everton and Leeds will stay up. And despite what I was saying before about season state and the, the caveats and the context, if you just look at it again on paper, Everton do still need to play Manchester City, Arsenal, Liverpool, Manchester United, Wolves, Spurs and West Ham 
which is tough. And you'd expect them to pick up some points there along the way, but there's, they've not made it easy for themselves considering they are in and around the, the relegation spots now as well. And with, with Leeds, I think it is kind of more of the same that we've spoken about in previous episodes in, in terms of their their expected goal difference and the chances that they're giving up. They have the third worst expected goal difference of, of any team in the league, which is, yeah, relegation form across the whole season. So they need to, to tighten up on that fast because there's obviously times running out and um, yeah it, they're just so open defensively aren't they they're, they're not as strong in an attacking sense because of the what we know to be with the injuries to to Bamford and a lot of the key players that they've had obviously Calvin Phillips is integral to the way that Leeds play but they're just so open defensively and they may be I don't know is there an act of desperation to to actually change things up in the final few weeks of the season which you don't suspect Bielsa will do but to stay up you might need to think of something different mm. Well, I think listening to you guys talk about it, this is certainly for me anyway, that the most intriguing chunk of the Premier League uh, from now on to the end of the season. And with apologies to the fans involved, because I know it, there's not a lot of joy in it, um, but fascinating, really. And I'm glad to have uh, to have chatted with you guys through this this week on the pod as we usher in the business end of the season. Michael, before we go, the business end of the season and the run in, not the same thing, right? When does when does the run in start? So now I might have to ask Adam Hurry about this kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure which starts earlier. Running sounds like it starts a bit earlier to me. Oh, no, I wouldn't say that at all. Really? I would say the running is like April onwards. So when is when a team's on the home straight then? Oh. The home straight is the running. Okay. The funny thing is, I always think of the run-in as starting roughly around Easter, but of course, Easter is notoriously a very movable feast, so <laughs> it doesn't really make any sense to categorise it that way. We're not qualified for this whatsoever. Uh, this has been the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. Huge thank you to Mark and Michael for chatting me through the, the Premier League as it is a really interesting few months to come. We'll be covering it and more on this podcast weekly, of course. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed and make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic as well, where you can read all of Mark and Michael's work. Tons of other good stuff on site as well at the moment. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics. Join us again next week on The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.